0: Our third section of Psalm 119 this evening begins at verse 57. It's a section arranged around the Hebrew letter Heth. Verse 57, Psalm 119. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I love how this section starts. You are my portion, O Lord. Those are the words of a satisfied soul. The psalmist is satisfied with the portion that he has received from the Lord, and that portion is the Lord Himself. You are my portion, O Lord. You could say that this is actually a broken sentence. That the translators have tried to mend it the best they can, but it, it maybe have been better to leave it alone. And then it would say just as it's exclaimed, as Charles Spurgeon pointed out, where it just says, My portion, O Lord. Isn't this is a beautiful exclamation. He's saying that just as the Levites wanted their portion to be God instead of an earthly inheritance, even so the psalmist says, you are my inheritance, you are my portion, you are my riches in this world. Now, we understand this in the broader context of Psalm 119. The Lord himself is the satisfaction of the psalmist because God has come to him in his word. It isn't as if the psalmist is in one place and the psalmist has to go, excuse me, that the, that the word of God is in one place and then the psalmist has to go someplace else to another place to experience the, the satisfaction and the enjoyment of God. No, he can say, you are my portion, O Lord, and I have received that portion as you meet me in your word and as I live it out. It's a great idea to think of. Lord, you are my portion. I wonder sometimes, what temptation could we not answer in our life just by responding to it, you are my portion, O Lord. I'm tempted by this, I'm tempted by that. No, you know what, you are my portion, O Lord. Not any of these false things that would claim to fill some void in my life. No, Lord, you are my portion. And you can say this, that if God isn't enough for you, if God isn't a good enough portion for you, then what do you want? This is the eternal sovereign of the universe. And that the I am, the becoming one. And he says to you, he says to me, I will be your portion. I'll be your inheritance. Now, can anybody possibly think that you could have more than that? No, no. Whatever you give up, excuse me, whatever you give up. Uh, now, let me phrase this right. Whatever it is that you give God up for is less than God, right? Is there a greater portion than God himself? And so the psalmist understood this. Verse 57, he continues on. I have said that I would keep your words. Now, by the way, that promise would be a very empty vow without the empowering of God in the life. That There's a very close connection to the fact that he enjoys God as his portion. His life is filled with God. His life is focused upon God. And then he has the strength to keep his words. And then he continues on in verse 58 where he says, I have entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. You see, he understood both the urgency in his seeking to please God and his inability to completely do it. The, the, the idea behind the words, your favor, when he says, I have entreated your favor, it, it's literally in the Hebrew, your face. To enjoy the face of God is to enjoy his favor. And here he's saying, God, I sought your face with my whole heart. Now be merciful to me according to your word. He sought God with a sense of urgency reflected in these words, entreated and a whole heart. He understood how important it is to put some urgency in our seeking of God. But he also sought God with a sense of inability shown in the request right there in verse 58, be merciful to me. You see, the request for mercy is never based on right or deserving. It isn't if he said this, God, okay, God, show yourself to me because I deserve it. No, no, no. It's show yourself to me, God. I entreated your favor, your faith with my whole heart. Be merciful to me and according to your word. Now, friends, we have no natural right to mercy before God. But according to God's promise, I can say that there is a spiritual right to mercy for all who will ask according to his promise. And so he continues on now, verse 58. I thought about my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. You see, he spent time in God's word, and therefore it gave him a sense of sober reflection about his ways, and that gave him the insight necessary to turn in the right direction. Look at it again with me, would you please? Verse 59, I thought about my ways, and I turned my feet to your testimonies. Of how few lives that's true. People that you know, people that you love, maybe some of you here this evening, your life is just spent aimless. You have no direction in your life, no goal, no purpose, no higher sense of God's calling or purpose in your life. You you have no idea of thinking about your ways. Would you please just do that right now? Would you think about your ways and then turn your feet to God's testimonies? There's a great French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. According to James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary, he says that he was a very devout Christian and he loved Psalm 119 and he memorized the entire Psalm. And he called verse 59 the turning point of man's character and destiny. And what he meant is this is that it's vital for every person to consider his or her ways and to understand that our ways are destructive and will lead us to destruction and then make an about face and instead determine to go in God's ways instead. Who, friends, who in this world thoughtfully goes to hell? Very few people, right? Do you ever think the devil sits down with somebody and says, I want you to think about this very carefully. You're going to hell, right? No, no, no. What does the devil want to do? The devil wants to cloud the mind of the person to where they never think of it at all. They never do exactly what the psalmist did, where he says, I thought about my ways. If people would think about it, even for a moment... They seem instead to pass through this world into eternity with never a serious thought on their ways. And they forget God, and then they die. Instead, look at the psalmist, verse 60. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Once he was on the right path, right? His feet has been turned now. His feet were in the wrong direction. But now in verse 59, his feet got turned into the right direction. Now he says, I'm going to make speed in the course of obedience. Now friends, it's a very dangerous thing to make haste on a wrong path, but it's a glorious thing to make haste on the right path. And we can say that making haste to God, hurrying towards God, that's a sign of revival. When God is moving in power, people make great haste to get right with him. You don't have to implore people. You don't have to exhort them. It's like, let's get right with God, and whoo, everybody's up front. It's because they are making haste to be right with God. It's sad that oftentimes people are very uh, in a hurry, I should say. They're very much in a hurry to be disobedient, but they're very slow to repent and come to obedience. Oh, that God would give us a greater hurry to obey It's a very interesting phrase that he uses here, too, in verse 60, where he says, and did not delay to keep your commandments. One old commentator, a man named Adam Clark, he says, the original word which we translate, delayed not, is amazingly emphatical. And then he gives the Hebrew translation, but he says, it's sort of this idea, I did not what, what, whating." Or as we would express the same idea, shilly-shallying with myself. No, 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 I wasn't just wandering about. I wasn't just, you know, moping around. No, I was determined I was going to go on the right way. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. And then he goes into verse 61. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. The psalmist was attacked and afflicted by adversaries, but they could not make him forget or forsake the law of God. Instead, he was so committed, verse 62 says, that at midnight he would rise up and give thanks to you. The the heart and the mind of the psalmist were so filled with thanks and appreciation to God that he found his sleep interrupted by these high thoughts. And he would rise up in the middle of the night just thinking about God. Isn't it wonderful? It's really wonderful to think about how this shows what a devoted man the psalmist was to the Lord. An old commentator named Thomas Manton, he cited in Spurgeon's great work on the psalms called The Treasury of David. He listed several notable lessons to be drawn from the midnight devotion of the psalmist. Number one, his devotion was earnest and passionate. The daylight hours didn't give him enough time to thank God. Number two, his devotion to God was sincere, shown by its secrecy. He was willing to thank God when nobody else could see him or be impressed by his devotion. Number three, he regarded time as precious. He even used the hours that are normally given to sleep to seek God. Fourthly, he regarded devotion to God as more important than natural refreshment because he was willing to sacrifice legitimate things like a good night's sleep for the pursuit of God. And then finally, he showed great reverence to God, even in his secret devotion, by rising up to praise him. It would have been enough. We would be impressed if he said, I laid on my bed and praised you. But no, he got up to praise God, and it required something of him, both soul and body. So with this spirit of devotion, he continues on in verse 63, where he says... I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. I like that in verse 63. I'm a companion of all those who fear you. He enjoyed a special fellowship among those who honored God and honored his word of those who keep your precepts. Isn't this a wonderful companionship, a testimony of countless Christians we experience this warm bond and fellowship with other people who honor his word. It doesn't matter about their race or their class or their nationality, or their education. You find somebody else who loves and honors the word of God and there's an instant bond between you both. They're the Lord's people together with you. And so he had that confidence. And then in verse 64, he ends it on such a note of glory. I love this large heart, this large mind of the psalmist. He says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. See, having experienced this broad companionship, the psalmist now felt the goodness of God filling the earth. The experience of God's mercy increased his desire for knowledge and obedience. He said, teach me your statutes. And you can see here a never-ending cycle. The pursuit of God in and through his word, it led to satisfaction and blessing. That satisfaction and blessing led to a deeper pursuit, which led to even more satisfaction and blessing, which led to a deeper pursuit on and on in a beautiful cycle. And friends, let me tell you, when you live in this glorious cycle, it feels as if the whole earth is full of the mercy of God. Now, that's a glorious, blessed life with the experience of mercy all around How big is the mercy of God? The world itself can't contain it. The whole world is full of it. Now, some of you may have thought in your mind that God is a God of small mercies, that you're really testing his patience, that he's greatly annoyed with you. Friends, you need to come back to a God who is full of a big mercy that fills the whole earth. And you need to say, God, I want to experience this, I want this to be mine. I want to wake up in the morning. I want to walk outside to a new day. And I want to say, Lord, the whole earth is full of your mercy. How far that is from the experience of many of us, right? Is that the happy cheerfulness with which you greet the day? Or is there a sense of misery and foreboding? I've got to go to work again today. (laughs) Or whatever it is that you do. You see, what a difference it is, right? To have that heart full of the greatness of God's mercy that fills all the earth. I imagine that there's a few people here, that feels about a million miles away from you right now. Well, you know what? Why don't you just ask God to make it closer? To make it close to you. And he'll answer that. And I'll tell you, one way that you can make it closer right now is to come on up and receive communion in just a moment. This is one little piece of the mercy of God by remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And to take it within yourself. To say, Lord, I just don't want to be a passive observer at the cross. I want to take it within myself. That's what you have for me. No, God's given us a whole earth full of mercy, and he's given you a place to grab hold of a piece of it right now. Let's do that together. Father, this is our prayer. We see the greatness of your mercy, Lord. So fill us with this joy, with this wonder at seeing how great you are and how large your mercy is. Bless us now as we continue to worship you and as we come to your open table of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.